0: Our uh, scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Corinthians 5:11 through 21 if you want to turn there. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
1: Well, good morning. If you're uh, just joining us, we are making our way through Second Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2nd letter, and the series is called Authenticity, so if you're just joining us, welcome, um, hopefully you'll be able to orient yourself, find your place where we are, and I'll do my best to make sure you don't get lost and you know where, what's going on. Um, but if you've been uh, going through this series with us, I hope also you've been able to get a good sense of what authentic Christianity really looks like, um, and I hope, I hope that that's been made clear uh, through the series. Uh, let's Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, show us our inauthenticity this morning, that you would reveal uh, the depths of what's inside of our hearts, what's uh, of our uttermost desire, and that you would show us of our desperate need for another, one whom you've you've provided. Amen. Amen. Uh, So about seven years ago at an awards ceremony, I'm just going to move this over a little bit. Sorry, Michael, Um, so I don't fling over. Um, So a few years ago at an awards ceremony, uh, 2011, it was honoring Robert Downey Jr., uh, the Iron Man actor. Uh, And he asked for everyone there uh, in Hollywood uh, to forgive Mel Gibson. And uh, a little bit of background on that. Uh, Downey himself had a checkered past with alcohol abuse, drug addiction, uh, culminating in 96. He, he was caught up in a lot of trouble. And so Gibson was the one who took a risk by paying Downey, uh, Downey's uh, bond, uh, bond insurance so he could star again in a hit film in 2003. And so commenting on this, Gibson said, when I saw you all those years ago and got all those warnings, I just thought, there's nothing so much wrong with him. Then he explained, you're a good dude with a good heart. And so at this acceptance speech in 2011, uh, the roles were swapped. They were reversed. So this time, uh, Gibson's the one struggling to find work in Hollywood since tapes had leaked uh, to show him uh, having some angry rants at his girlfriend and use of uh, racial slurs. And so around that time, too, uh, Gibson himself was addicted to alcohol, and I think he was suffering from manic depression. So they really reversed roles here. And so during Downey's uh, acceptance speech... He said this, he said, I asked Mel to present this award for me for a reason. He said, when I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope and encouraged me to find my faith. It didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me as the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him. He kept a roof over my head, put food on the table, and most importantly, he said, if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoing and embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus, as he calls it, he said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man of some humil- humility, and my life would take on new meaning. He continued, it did and it worked, and all that he asked in return is that someday I help the next guy in some small way. Now, I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to continue in a minute, uh, a little bit later, uh, to finish out what he said, but I want us to really pause on that picture of hugging the cactus. Ouch. Like, who wants to hug a cactus, Right? doesn't sound like a good idea, um, but I think that we do need to get to that point where we can hug the cactus, and I, and I want to put that before us this morning, and I want that to happen to each of us, um, because we need to get to that place of desperation, that place of true, utter dependence upon God, of, of bare nakedness before him, coming to grips with who we are really deep down, um, if we're ever going to be set free. G.K. Chesterton, um, it's an English mouthful, G.K. Chesterton, so uh, a prolific author, a great writer, Uh, he once said though, it isn't that they can't see the solution, he said it is that they can't see the problem, they can't see the problem, and I think that's true when we're talking about the estrangement that we experience in our own lives as we're looking at different relationships. Uh, when we're wanting more affection from a lover or more attention from a parent or more time with our children or, or we're just wondering, you know, what's my place in this world and how's everything working out? And we're wondering. Or we're looking at the fractured web of relationships that we're a part of when we look at relationships and they're so broken. So much bad stuff happens around us, right? I mean, everybody knows deep down that The world would be a better place. People would be much happier and more fulfilled if everyone just loved one another, right? Like, that makes sense, right? If everybody just got along. Love, love, love. All we need is love. Love is all you need. The Beatles, yeah? Uh, The world would be better. Everybody would be happier, no doubt. Um, So we see the solution, but our problem is that we don't really know or understand fully the problem. That's our problem. We don't know the problem. And so I want to spend some time hugging the cactus this morning. Let's do that in two points. Uh, I want to first look at the greatest obstacle in the way of reconciliation. Uh, this is reconciliation uh, with God as well as with our neighbors, with other people around us. Closest neighbors, family, furthest neighbors away, uh, foreigners, just that that's what I'm talking about here with reconciliation. And then, and then second point, uh, the only way forward. So I want those two things to guide us this morning. So, So... The greatest obstacle in the way of reconciliation. Let's look at that first thing. Uh, uh, Please look look with me in your Bibles, verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. Verse 12. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance And not about what is in the heart. And so what is the greatest obstacle in our way? What gets in the middle of every opportunity to be reconciled to God and other people? I think the greatest obstacle in the way, as Paul's saying here with boasting, is our pride. That is the greatest obstacle that stands in the way of all reconciliation. And so in this letter, specifically, Paul's opposing uh, these voices and these people who believe that pride is this tool, almost like a weapon, that can be used for good. And they can be used for Christ. And so his opponents judged by what looked good on the outside. They were winning an audience with uh, the church in Corinth and, uh, and other churches too. Uh, because the same was true in their culture. There were uh, rhetoricians, great orators that would come around, uh, travel into the city. And they'd deliver a very eloquent, uplifting, and beautiful talk. Kind of like, like TED Talks. Like They've done so well. I love them. You know? Uh, great. Great. Um, they would impress with elegant words, dramatic expressions. They'd wear the designer brands. Uh, for those of you who like digging into the scriptures, and you're like, man, show me, the, like, what does the Bible say? Like, you like digging. Uh, I want to dig deep a little bit. Let's go back. Uh, when when Paul's saying in verse 12, uh, those who boast about outward appearance, he's making a reference in the Old Testament. And this is back with the prophet Samuel, when uh, God had chose David to be king over Saul, He said this in 1 Samuel 16. He said, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16.7. Paul directly quotes that right here. Refers back as if to say that the church is always going to be enticed and attracted to and enamored with what is um, impressive in display. So when the world judges by Prada and Gucci, which I guess those aren't even in fashion anymore, I don't know, know. what's something else, replace it with whatever's fashionable, three seconds ago, Uh, and what's in, God says to look at the heart. And so what's on the inside matters more than the outside, but if we're honest, we take pride in what's impressive. Uh, We put our best foot forward when we're talking to other people, and so, you know, we're recommending a restaurant to other friends, and we're going, oh, dude, go to this place, this place, they have the best food ever, it's a little pricey, you know, and we say that kind of to posture ourselves, like, it's a little pricey, because I can afford it, because, like, or it's exclusive, you know, it's this, like, in-club only thing, and that, it's impressive, that's what we do, we put our best foot forward, as we heard a few weeks ago in a sermon, um, and, 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 and we're signaling with all of that. And in the same fleshly way, sadly, in the churches, we can do that too. And so, you know, some people uh, might be boasting in uh, the title of their pastor, the Reverend Doctor so-and-so, uh, or, or uh, we might boast in uh, a pastor's achievements, being a blogger, author, writer. Uh, others boast in giftedness or eloquence or learning. And in all of those ways, it's, it's boasting in the wrong stuff to validate ministry, Authentic ministry doesn't require all that. A successful ministry is, is faithful and fruitful according to God's standards not the world's standards. And so what this identifies for us, this, this talk of boasting, is that this great obstacle is in our way. It's always in our way. And it's a great problem. And that problem uh, doesn't just affect churches or, or, or popular places and big cities, uh, but it affects everybody. Pride is the problem. And we're too busy boasting. We boast about ourselves. It can be our good looks. It can be our good networks, our good friends, our good efforts. Uh, We take pride in what we've done or who we've done it with or how we've done it. And so pride's that great obstacle. And and why is pride such a great obstacle? I really think about it. Uh, Pride is such a problem because it's like wearing a mask. Um, To everybody else, you look like somebody else. And that someone else is too good to be true, that someone else is so beautiful, or so strong, or so handsome, or so popular, or so wealthy, or so put together, like somebody who just like, it always seems like everything goes so well, they it's just so perfect, how could you ever compare? And, and that mask gets in the way, and it becomes um, kind of a roadblock to people, it gets in the way, and because that mask, not, it's not authentic, it's inauthentic, it's, it's a phony, and other people can't see past the mask. They, they see what you want them to see, what's put out in front. And so we boast in our outward appearances as sort of this way to escape what's really going on, from admitting the truth that we don't have it all together, that we don't really have it going on, and that we need to hug a cactus. But hugging a cactus is hard, though, isn't it? Uh, doesn't it, it doesn't sound like fun. And uh, why would I need to hug a cactus? I'm not a prideful person. I'm not a boastful person. I want to challenge that if you are thinking that you're not a prideful person. Uh, a, a, another dead guy, but whatever. Dead guys are cool. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, he, he said this. He, he once said, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take, refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in? or patronize me, or show off. Now, of course, those, that's like all English speech right there. Shove their oar in, like, what? But um, but Lewis, uh, he's getting at something here. I mean, have you ever, ever talked to somebody and, and you've gotten annoyed um, because they never really asked you about your new haircut, or how many pounds you dropped, or how many pounds you gained, or, you know, like, whatever it is. Or the new car that you just got, the new car that you want to drive, like something about you that you're, and you're just, it's that nagging thing. You wish that they would ask you about it and they don't. And so it rubs you the wrong way. And so you got to go tell your friends, hey, oh, this person really bothers me. Oh, I can't believe what he did or she did. And we do that. It's a boasting problem. Lewis continues though to describe it. He says, the point is that in each person's pride, each person's pride's in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or clever or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure... Of being above the rest. So, I mean, that was a beautiful uh, explanation of, of pride and really getting at the rub, getting at the issue here in our hearts. A proud person has no need to reconcile with anybody, they always are right. Always, they always got it going for them. And, and, and the Bible says that the problem with this way of thinking and, and living in the world is that uh, the reality is that we need to go hug a cactus. We need to confront that ugly truth with ourselves. Um, The Bible also says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? And the reality is we need a new heart. And the only way we can get a new heart is through the power of the cross. i want to talk about that right now. The only way forward. It's our second point this morning to guide us. What, What is the only way forward out of this predicament of human pride, this boasting problem that we all have, that we all suffer from, that we all confront other people with and belittle people with? and use as a tool, as a weapon. If the greatest obstacle to reconciliation with God and other people in our lives is pride, then the only way forward is humility, right? Problem is, we're tempted to go on about getting humility in the same way that we're trying to get rid of being prideful. So, we think, I need to to work on not being proud anymore, and so I'm going to be a humble person today. As we think to ourselves. And so we might do random acts of kindness uh, to try not to take credit for them. Uh, But deep down, guess what? What are we doing? Who's a good boy today? You know, give ourselves that pat on the back. You know what I'm talking about? Um, In his book, The The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller notes, on C.S. Lewis, talking about pride. So this is like a quote of a quote of a quote. Um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person, right? The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people, does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. And In fact, this is how he concludes, says, in fact, I stopped thinking about myself. The thing is, in order for us to become a person who's truly humble like that, who's truly a nobody in the way that we don't want to be nobody, we actually have to stop thinking about ourselves. But, but we need to first, before we can even stop thinking about ourselves, we need to think about the one who thought not of himself, but thought of us. When he was born, when he lived, when he died, And when he rose again. And when we dwell on that one, talking about Jesus, we dwell on him, the one who was only, the only one who was ever humble in this life, truly humble, we actually begin to get a bit of what humility is all about. And anything short of the gospel won't be enough. Verse 13 For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, if we're in our right mind, it's for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I mean, did you hear that? That that, that Christ's love for Paul is that driving force, is that engine, is that fuel for Paul's love for others in, in reconciling work and in, in all the work that he's doing. So it's this one-way love of Jesus dying on the cross. It's that act on the cross that undoes our pride and replaces our pride with humility. Paul continues, verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then the last verse, 21. For our sake he made him to, to be... Him who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here, Paul talks about those who are reconciled becoming reconciling people. So, reconcilers. uh, God reconciles Paul to himself through Jesus, and he gives Paul the ministry of reconciliation. And... It's interesting here because Paul is the only writer in the New Testament who uses the word reconciliation. Um, He's the only one who uses the verb to reconcile the noun reconciliation. And so why does he choose that word? What's up with that word? Why that word? Reconciliation is the removal of tension between parties and the restoration of loving fellowship. To reconcile means to bring back a a friendship after estrangement, to reharmonize. Um, in casual speech, you know, we might say that a couple that's been having a lot of issues and having problems that they need to kiss and make up, right? Or um, brothers that constantly are fighting. I mean, they're just at each other's throats. We have boys, so our kids are just like, you know. But you need to go and bury the hatchet. You ever heard, heard that expression before? Um, all of this, this, this picture of reconciliation, it, it's to restore peace to parties who are at war. This war is going on. To get back at that harmony, that health that once was, um, that's what Paul's talking about. So so we read him talking about reconciliation. It's always God who's the one doing the work of reconciling. God changes the relationship from one of war to one at peace. He makes opposites attract, and all of that happens through Jesus' death on the cross. And that's Paul's point here. And so our, our greatest need in this entire world is to be reconciled to God that is our greatest need. Each one of us is part of a world that has set itself up as enemies of God. So that's why when we read uh, the Bible and we notice, we keep saying over and over again that Jesus came to save sinners. Not not good people, not people who think that they were good, but he came for sinners. And so when Jesus died, he died for the world. It's a word that um, John's gospel covers well and explains in this way that, that we're not maybe used to. Um, And in this context, Paul's using it again. He says world, meaning that hostile world that hated God and neighbor. That's how he's using world here in our our text. And it's not a nice word to describe us. It's a pretty mean word. Um, And he's saying that God gives his grace and reconciles those, this rebellious world, to himself through the cross. Not counting, as he says in verse 19, their trespasses against them. And that's to remind us that God doesn't use our sins as a reason to withhold forgiveness. In fact, our sins are the very reason that he's acted. It's his love that's compelled him to send Jesus into this world to reconcile us to himself. And man, thank God that, that uh, he doesn't wait until we have everything figured out and everything together before he makes a move in our lives, Right? I mean, thank God that he can and he does call sinners to himself. And he actually even uses sinners to reconcile other sinners to himself. What a glorious message it is, this ministry of reconciliation. You know, at the beginning of the sermon, I, I mentioned Robert Downey Jr., his acceptance speech. And, and we ended with the idea of him hugging that cactus, right? He's talking about hugging the cactus. And, and we we're talking about that a little bit, owning up to his wrongdoing. And I want to finish what he said now. So, so he says this, all he asked in return was that someday I help the next guy in some small way. It's reasonable to assume at the time he didn't imagine the next guy would be him or that someday was tonight. So anyway, on this special occasion in, in light of the recent holidays, I would ask you to join me unless you're completely without sin, in which case you picked the wrong industry. In forgiving my friend his trespasses and offering him the same clean slate you gave me, allowing him to continue his great and ongoing contribution to our collective art without shame. He's hugged the cactus long enough. That's how he ends. And, and, I mean, it was thunderous applause from Hollywood, Uh, vigorous applause, and and Gibson tears up a bit, and you see Downey and and Gibson, you know, embrace one another, and they hug for quite a time. It's a really powerful moment uh, to watch. The story of reconciliation in a small way unfold in real time between two celebrities who have messed up lives, right? And this morning, none of us are here before Hollywood. We're not at an awards ceremony right now. Um, But we are standing before God as judge of the world. And this time, it's not Mel Gibson advocating for Downey Jr., it's not Downey Jr. advocating for Mel Gibson we have an even greater and better advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who stands before God on our behalf in Christ. Our elder brother who suffered for us and died so we'd be set free from our addictions, from our struggles, from what afflicts us. He's our advocate. And we see in this great reversal, the greatest exchange imaginable and possible, that Jesus swaps places with us so that we would not just get a new job or get to continue making good art, but we'd be given a new life and a new heart. So as, verse, as verse 21 reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this, this Jesus was without sin, and he holds out to each of us sinners in this room a warm invitation, a very welcoming, embracing invitation, to be counted as one who can sin no more, and as somebody who has no more shame. As somebody who can stand before God the Father, not as a judge, but now as as your father, because of what Jesus did for you. Because Jesus is living a perfect life that you should have lived, but you didn't. Dying the death that we should have died, but he did. That Jesus holds out forgiveness and life to us this morning. So do you want that good word to be true of you today? God wants to give your life meaning again. He wants to make you an agent of reconciliation in this world. And are you tired of hugging the cactus this morning? I'm a little tired of hugging the cactus. It's pretty pointy. It hurts. (laughs) I'm tired of seeing my ugly. Well, put on the beauty of Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. Believe in him. In the precious name of Jesus. And be forgiven. Be be counted as one who who God can say of you. He's a good dude with a good heart. She's a good girl with a good heart. Because Jesus was good. (laughs) And through faith alone in Jesus, God can say the same of you.